Welcome to Feminists Without Mystique, a podcast where we process politics, sex, and the unrelenting firehose of bullshit in the news through an unapologetically feminist lens. Each week, we'll begin by venting about the news, go deep on one important issue, call out terrible things happening below the top headlines in a segment called We See You, and then we'll end with something hopeful. But we didn't do that. We're not doing that today. We're not doing that today. We're not doing that today. (laughs) We have a very special something today. We're interviewing um, Sandra Gilbert and Susan Goober, um, and we are going to dive into that, uh, which is pre-recorded. We've already recorded it now. I'm recording the intro, so it's already happened. It's in the past, but it's about to be in the future. This is part of our series where we are interviewing different authors who are involved in the Miami Book Fair. Um, so we'll be getting into that and diving deep into that this episode. No WCUs. We still will end with a good thing. Um, and as always, if you're enjoying us, uh, subscribe, rate, review, follow us on the social meds, um, FWM podcast on Twitter and Facebook and Feminist Without Mystique on Instagram. Um, that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We're that's excited. The, yeah. I, you know, I think every I think our listeners will really actually really enjoy this conversation. Um, we talk about uh the problematic white women voting against their best interests politically we mm-hmm. get into intersectional feminism and the uneven progress of the women's movement over the last 50 years and the ways in which it's endangered now and teens and social and teens. media mm-hmm. what's going on yeah yeah like lots of and also and you'll see in this this book just does so many different really interesting things as it covers the last like 50 to 70 years actually at this point of um women's women's history um different literature essays poets um and like just like all the like they say in the book which is the title is still mad american women writers and the feminist imagination um, which, by the way, great title, still mad, stay mad, always. But this is looking at the feminist imagination over the last 50 to 70 years. And if you've read anything by Joan Didion, Susan Sontag, Sylvia Plath, Virginia, you know, there's like... Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord, yes. Lorraine Hansberry, um, Alison Bechdel. There's just like, I'm just pulling out the top things that I'm thinking of, Adrian Rich, there's just so much on these women and how they each, how they either worked with each other or their dialogues where they had differences over their perspectives on feminism, whether or not they even identified as a feminist. It's really fascinating. And it just all kind of, it gives you just this great overarching understanding of literary, feminist literary history over the last 50 to 70 years. Yeah, it's great. Enjoy the interview with Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar. Enjoy. We're so excited to welcome to the podcast Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar, who co-authored Still Mad, American Women Writers and the Feminist Imagination. Still Mad is a history of the contemporary women's movement from the 1950s through today, told through the lives and works of women authors. Sandra Gilbert is a distinguished literary critic, poet, and professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis. She most recently authored Judgment Day Poems. She lives in Berkeley, California. 
Susan Goober is an acclaimed memoirist, literary critic, and professor emeritus at Indiana University. The author most recently of Late Life Love, a memoir. She lives in Bloomington, Indiana. Goober is the co-author with Sandra M. Gilbert of The Mad Woman in the Attic, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and co-editor of the Norton Anthology of Literature by Women, among other volumes. In 2012, they were awarded the Ivan Sandroff Lifetime Achievement Award by the National Book Critics Circle. Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar are two of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair 2021, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are all so looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. So please visit MiamiBookFair.com for more information or follow them at Miami Book Fair uh, on Twitter, hashtag Miami Book Fair 2021. Susan and Sandra, welcome. <laughs> Oh, oh, thank, thank you, you so for much. having us. Well, thank, thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. And first of all, this was such an enjoyable read. Um, I think both Aaron and I felt like it reignited uh, our interest in going back and reading some of these um, women who we haven't read in a while. Perhaps we read some of them in college. And um, it's just been really exciting to kind of dive back into the the history and um, it just, we're kind of with, with work and with different responsibilities at home and in life, uh, it, it's really helped us kind of, it helps remind us that we, we want to go back and read, read more generally, but like read these women because they are so inspiring and so um exciting to just engage with. Thank you for that. Um, we also thought that it was kind of cool. We share some similarities with um, you both in that our podcast and this book seem to spring out of the incredibly traumatic election of, um, of Trump. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Anything bright, any silver lining to that dark time um, uh, has been been great to engage with. And so we we're feeling an affinity with you both um, just from just from that. Thank and you. We came away with so many questions and I'll let Aaron kick it off. I'll tell you, we just immediately had questions that were very topical. Um, so we, we will, but we'll kind of hold those either till the end or every topic made me want to ask you about something that happened like last weekend, like um, for instance, like the role of protesting and pushing women who aren't standing up for the values they've espoused, like Kristen Cinema, who was confronted recently in the bathroom and kind of wanted to hear what your thoughts are were on that or your thoughts on Britney Spears and um, her conservatorship battle, um, which I thought just interestingly with the mad woman in the attic um, and uh, the way in which someone so prominent could be, exploited, depicted as kind of mad and her, the way her rage and the rage of those around her, um, has only finally come, become public, but after 13 years of being basically imprisoned. Oh, that's such an interesting idea. Can I just, this is Sandra. Yeah. It's yeah. such an interesting point that you're making. I had not thought about that in connection with the Britney Spears case, but of course you're right. And I think, and also, uh, to turn to Kristen cinema, um, it's, it really, I think that Kristen Cinema shows us that we have possibilities, right? She's a senator. Um, she is openly bisexual. Um, we have possibilities, but we still have the same old problems. I mean, her problems are, 
are psychological. I think she's internalized something that's really that's really sad and bad. And as for Britney Spears, she's just it's an obvious case, which I really have to say I hadn't thought of, but uh, but a wonderful point. Um, so we have new possibilities, but we have the same old problems. Um, the silver lining is the new possibilities, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that we talk about the long history of the second wave of the women's movement and trace it from Sylvia Plath and Adrian Rich through people like Lorraine Hansberry and, and Simone, uh, Nina Simone, all the way up to Toni Morrison, all the way up to Alison Bechtel to today, is that we, is just for the reason Sandra just said, is that we think that the same problems women in the 50s and the 60s confronted, women are still confronting today. In the 50s, Adrian Rich and Sylvia Plath and Lorraine Hansberry had a lot of trouble combining their aesthetic ambition with their marriages, with their, with their children. And these are still the problems that women are confronting today. But at the same time, speaking of possibilities, uh, we were talking a little bit before we went online on the air about Hillary Clinton. Well, Hillary Clinton is an amazing example of the problems and the possibilities. I mean, she was so much more better qualified, forgive my grammar, to, to be president than I don't even want to name her opponent, the former guy, as yes. Biden says. She was so much more qualified. And yet she was defeated and I think a, a, with a, a kind of misogynistic wave of anti-feminism among pro-Trump white women voters. Um, at the same time, in 2020, we have seen the election to the vice presidency of Kamala Harris, who, you know, stood on stage with Joe Biden in a white pantsuit, just the way Hillary Clinton accepted the nomination in a white pantsuit, hearkening back to the, the costume of the suffragists who wore white to let the world know who they were and what they stood for. So problems so, advice. And I just, to, just to continue on that tack, one of the things that still Matt traces is this history of uh, pro-Trump, or you could say misogynist white women. Um, and it starts with people like Helena Deutsch in the 50s, and it moves all the way up today with, at the center in the 1970s, Phyllis Schlafly, who was so powerful that she managed to defeat the ERA. Um, so th- this issue of pro women, white women voting for Trump is another, is another theme. And we were very surprised when we discovered that, in fact, Trump was a huge fan of Phyllis Schlafly, and he was an orator at her funeral. That's so amazing. That is so amazing. He was? Wow. Yeah, that is so amazing. Yeah, misogyny is, is not a, a side product of Trump. It's, mm. it's, it's at the very core. Right. It, it fuels, it fuels yeah. this sort of Trumpist movement. And um, it, it fueled, and some of it fueled, for example, the January 6th insurrection, which was trying to tear apart, you know, a, a certified democratic election. So it's hard to think about that, isn't it? But I mean, unfortunately, we do have to think about that. We have to think about the way in which, on the one hand, the long second wave of feminism has led to the empowerment of women in numerous ways, but at the same time, it has been greeted with a lot of misogynistic backlash. 
And uh, not only that, but women continue to have the same kinds of problems that, let's say, Sylvia Plath had. And Adrienne Rich, they wanted, Sylvia Plath wanted to be a triple threat woman, wife, mother, and poet. And yet at the same time, she just couldn't manage it all. She couldn't do it all. Adrienne Rich had the same problem, as she noted in her amazing book, Motherhood uh, on Motherhood, um, on Motherhood as, as Institution and fact, right? Both of them had those problems and women today still do. I mean, especially during the pandemic, women who were had to stay at home were the ones who had to stay at home with the children who had to stay at home. Absolutely. Yes. We, um, I'll jump ahead to one of, one of the questions as it relates to kind of what we were, you've been discussing with, um, with white women and white women voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you're referencing a work on page 156. Uh, the mm-hmm. crucial problem of white women hinges upon the dependence upon men. Um, white women as a voting block tend to vote against their best interests more than other groups of women. Do you think this has to do with the dependence upon men intersected with the shelter of white privilege? Or is there something else you describe this to? Why do you think this happens? Well, you know, the Marxists would call it false class consciousness. Uh- has an awful lot to do with a a process of interiorization. Um, Kate Millett calls it a a kind of psychic colonization where women are brought up and socialized to believe that, you know, Eve or Pandora caused all the problems in the world and they should put on veils and cover their heads. It's It's a very difficult problem. It has a great deal to do with internalization. Well, also, there's a way in which, I mean, if you think of a book like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, where the Shirley Temple, or the blue white Shirley Temple doll is the feminine ideal that's inflicted on the African-American child, but that, that ideal is also inflicted on little white girls who are, who are you know, taught to be Barbies or, or, or to be Shirley, you know, we used to be Shirley Temples, now it's Barbies and what is that other line of American girl? dolls, right, Um, which are slightly better because they they do acknowledge different ethnicities. But nonetheless, I mean, girls are taught to be living dolls. And um, once you're a living doll, then you need to be taken care of by some man who is going to um, support you and you'll be in the dollhouse as in Ibsen's play, right? Yeah, what was exciting about the 70s is how many different dramatists and poets and painters uh, installationists um, addressed that issue and really, really explained it and discussed it. I and mean, people like Kate Millett, but also somebody we did not know at the time, we only discovered when we were writing the book, Susan Sontag. Well, wait, just let me we, Susan Sontag, we knew her, but we had no idea that she had written these amazing feminist essays, which are hidden at the back of the Library America edition of her work. Uh, which was edited by her son, and they're put at the very back of the book, never published in any of the collections that she she printed in her lifetime. Quite extraordinary because they're brilliant essays. They're brilliant. One of our one one of our discoveries in the book, which which actually made us laugh, at, at the time Sontag didn't want to be known as a feminist uh, because she wanted to be a, a sort of at the center of the counterculture and a cultural uh, sort of left wing guru. Uh, and making herself known as a feminist or as a lesbian um, might put her on the edge rather than at the cultural center. Um, what, she had an argument about an essay in the 
New York Review of Books with Adrian Rich. And uh, Sanji, you want to tell that story? It's one of my favorite discoveries in our book. Well, they decided that they should get together. They turned out they both lived on the uh, on the Upper West Side. So they really lived near each other. And they had had this rather, really quite famous argument in the New York Review of Books. So they said, let's get together and talk about our problems. And they did. I think it was that Adrian went over to, um, to Suntag's apartment and they talked for a while. And then after they talked for a while, they fell into bed together. <laughs> But I, I just want to say one thing about Suntag, though, Susan, you know, in a way, I, she, while she wanted to be at the center of, at the cultural center as a writer for the Partisan Review, she was also actually, and this is interesting in terms of the living doll idea, she was actually quite pleased to be the dark lady of, of, mm-hmm. um, of, intel, of the intelligentsia, right? With all of these gorgeous pictures of her. I mean, on the back of her first book, her novel, there was just, there was no, there were no blurbs, there was no text. There was just a beautiful picture of her in a black turtleneck with her long hair falling around her shoulders. So she, in a sense, was an intellectual's living doll. She was a glamour queen and was not sorry to be that, even though she didn't want to be outspoken as a feminist. So it's a kind of interesting contradiction and that's the kind of contradiction that so many of these women struggled with in their lives. And that's so interesting because I didn't quite think of it, but do do you still think that, and this is straying from our question list, but do you think that um, women today, especially people who are writing op-eds in the New York Times or still for the New York Review of Books or um, just prominent kind of thought leaders are all trying to find their own specific, their own niche and embody that even aesthetically and then in their arguments to kind of separate themselves sometimes from, from maybe sometimes from a feminist perspective or I'm, I'm just thinking of like sometimes in the New York Times op-ed where you see like someone like maybe Maureen Dowd writing something that is almost meant to provoke. Oh, um, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, we won't name the name, but we got well, the New York Times got still mad reviewed. Uh, they gave the book to a reviewer who, in our in still mad, we call an anti-feminist. Oh, <laughs> now that's odd. That seems yeah. odd to me. Well, yeah, something that the New York, I mean, the Times book review does now and then to just you know set up an argument. I don't know, but I but I do think that. That what we're talking about is what I would call the I'm not a feminist but syndrome, which one hears we've heard all our teaching lives. And I also can remember students when I would say this is this was a problem or that was a problem in women's literary history and in women's history generally, they would say, Well, Professor, of course you come from an earlier age. We've come a long way, Professor. Those same things aren't happening. When my students would say that to me, I would say, well, you know, right now you're an undergraduate or a graduate student and everything seems open and available and wonderful to you. But in 10 years, when you have children and a career and you're trying to fit all these things together, come back and see me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, There's been so much in some ways there's been a lot of progress. There's been substantial progress in the fight for equity over the years, but there are also these persistent themes, these concerning setbacks, these inequities that just seem to persist no matter what I think about Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, and then Christine Blasey Ford and Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh. I think about 
you know, the idea that Roe v. Wade was set precedent and now we have the Texas abortion restriction and the question of what's going to happen with, with Roe. Do you, do you think we're ever going to reach true equity without having to look over our shoulders? What does that look like? Are we, is it going to happen? I think that's, that's the <laughs> real central <laughs> question of uh, feminism, uh, that mm-hmm. very question, because uh, there is no historical precedent. Right, There's right. no society that is completely egalitarian in history. And that's why we called the book a uh, book about the feminist imagination, because it required envisioning something that had not existed. Right. Uh, another theme in this book is, you know, that there's a great deal of utopian thinking about feminism, the wish for a better world, um, as well as an anxiety about a degenerative world that's dystopic. But right. at the very heart of feminism, it seems to me, is this imagining what has never before been and hoping that it may come into being. And it's interesting to consider that that does go back to the suffrage movement. Um, although the kind of when somebody like Victoria Woodhull actually tried to do this utopian thing of running for president, which was quite extraordinary. But but that we have changed. Things have changed. I mean, a woman did run for president and a woman is now vice president. So certain quasi or almost possibly utopian things have happened. Yet at the same time, we are, there's no question about it. Texas is obviously a dystopia. I mean, Texas tells us that we're living in a dystopia, that, that something like this could happen where ordinary citizens are are empowered to turn in people who have who have sought to, to do what is theirs constitutionally right, what is their constitutional right, is it's about as dystopian as anything I can think of. Yeah. So Absolutely. disappointing. Yeah, you reference yeah. Handmaid's Tale in, in your book and you know, people reference it in pop culture and I think that's one example where it, it feels like we're we're headed in uh in that direction. But just to lighten us on our mood up a little bit, um, <laughs> we also mention uh, Bechtel and her Bechtel mm-hmm. test for movies. You know, we see much more of that on the small screen and the big screen. Oh, and we see more women directing, we see more women producing, and there's, it's really quite remarkable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I used to say to my students um, 50 years ago, I would not have been standing in front of this class of, of, you know, like 200 of you lecturing you wearing a pantsuit, right? I wouldn't have been, A, standing in front of the class, might not even have been able to be in the class. The class would not have existed because it was a class in literature by women. And I certainly wouldn't have been wearing a pantsuit. So uh, really quite extraordinary changes have brought us to where we are. But we're still, Mm. it's still a fight. It's still a struggle. It's an ongoing struggle, and um, I think that I think that with the election of Trump and the defeat of, of Hillary Clinton, who thought that maybe she could make the impossible possible, uh, I think that what we saw was a great uh, feminist backlash against Trumpism. I mean, the, the marches that women. The, the, the great 2017, March of January 2017, with which we begin the book. And of course, when people are marching again now because of the Texas situation. Absolutely. It definitely, um, you know, is inciting people to who otherwise might not have 
gotten involved or might have become complacent with the thing way things were um you know motivated people and women to really fight for our rights because we realized things could get taken away you know it's not all guaranteed and you bring up the idea of um you know making the impossible impossible is what women of clinton's generation were brought up to believe what and you've mentioned some of them um you know speaking in the lecture in your pantsuit what are some other opportunities for women that exist today that seemed impossible to you in the past well you um, have to you have to remember that when we went to school when we went to college neither one of us had a woman who was a professor Mm -hmm. oh a professor was a man in tweeds with a pipe (laughs) you know so I, i mean the fact that women are are a good portion of the law schools the entering law schools the fact that women are a good proportion of the entering medical schools, this is a complete revolution from our point of view. Yes. Yes, it is. And I don't think that young women are brought up. Well, I don't know. I have a 16-year-old granddaughter, so I'm, I, I have to be careful in what I say. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that young women are brought up to wear a girdles and uh, pantyhose and all. I mean, yeah, but they are brought up to dress in certain ways, so. I'll, I'll qualify that. <laughs> There's the problem for women of self-presentation, which is also a problem that um, that Susan Sontag was addressing in one of those essays in the Library of America volume on, on femininity, in which she talks about the ways in which women are feminized, or as Simone de Beauvoir put it, one is not born but made a woman and forced to you know, internalize all of these imperatives of femininity as defined in, in our case, as defined in Western culture. Absolutely. And there's always going to be trends in terms of, you know, what's cool and what's, you know, what looks good. But I think the the goal is for a woman's worth not being tied up in how she chooses to present herself or how she, how she looks. Well, just today, as I'm sure you will notice, there was a woman testifying that teenage girls uh, with Facebook and, mm-hmm. and its various venues are um, suffering from anorexia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, this is, as you say, an ongoing problem. Very disturbing. And I look at the, at the um, I mean, when you look at the clothing that uh, a lot of women are wearing, including, including you know, prominent uh, female and supposedly feminist politicians, uh, women are still forced to... Um, to costume themselves in weird ways, like with, you know, four inch tiny stiletto heels, which do awful things to one's feet. Yeah. I've never been able to wear them. I would have fallen down, but. Yeah. I, there was a period where I tried and uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. I struggle with heels still. And I, and I am grateful that I was not, you know, we, we were not really raised with social media. I do kind of think about how, in some ways, that seems like a, a setback for for young girls mentally. To you know, oh, what, a, what an interesting point! <laughs> Just the pressure that is that that they are as you become a woman, you're or made a woman. You're also made made into whatever aesthetic you're seeing as you're scrolling through Instagram or right. Facebook, getting. And then all these face tuning. I'm not sure. If, I'm sure your your 16 year old might be aware of all these different ways in which you can change your face and filter it to make it look be- oh, closer yeah. to an ideal. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which the majority 
of girls by the time they're 13 have used those those really filters and they change your features you know and often to conform to a eurocentric idea of beauty you know where it's it's thinning your nose and changing your eye color your eye shape all these all these things so there are these these messages that make me feel really hopeful for young girls you know accepting your body the way it is and things like that but then you see these this these other data points that show but we still have these insecurities we still have these um, you know, wanting to conform to these ideals of beauty. So it's... You know, and, the, and the obsession with selfies, which, oh in it, in it, which you know, uh, leads these young people to objectify themselves. I mean, my, my granddaughter, who is really a feminist, a very strong feminist, but she started, because they just play with their iPhones, so she started taking all these selfies when she was, you know, six or seven or eight years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Uh, it, it gives them, it, it, it forces on these on these children uh, the same kind of well the same kind of pressure that the Shirley Temple doll does you know in the bluest eye. Yeah, it's the doll doll aesthetic twenty first century. Yeah, I would love to get, go back to you mentioned um, the pandemic and the pandemic's impact on women. I mean, some some statistics show that nearly one point eight million women have dropped out of the labor force. And that group of people are now sort of grappling with when and how or even whether to return back to work. Um, The economy seems like it's improving, but it looks like women's employment rates could take longer than, you know, two two or more years to return to pre-pandemic rates. And that's assuming we even get out of the pandemic in a a more real sense anytime soon. Um, How do you think this will like will affect the long-term struggle and how will this ripple? Um, do you think it'll take a decade longer to sort of practically for women to kind of practically come back from this type of a setback broadly? Um, it seems like women are navigating this Adrian Rich, Sylvia Plath struggle with having it all with um, the domesticity and the aesthetic and their personal relationships and their partnerships that is seems to be playing out on zoom every day, at least with some of, some of the colleagues that yeah, I have. I, I think that's true. I think that's true. Even for those who did not leave the workforce, mm-hmm. well, Sandra and I are always thinking about the future in terms of our children and grandchildren. And we're very aware that a, a number of women who were lucky enough not to lose their jobs, nevertheless had extraordinary tensions in their lives because of, working at home with children and housekeeping and childcare and wifing and whatever, partnering. Um, so it's, 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 it's a problem that's constant, but we are really not um, uh, forecasters of political <laughs> events. We're, we're literary historians. Yeah. <laughs> and what I can say uh, without a doubt is that this is gonna continue to produce more wonderful literature. <laughs> right, I think that's true, that absolutely out of the conflicts and the contradictions because of the possibilities, you know, that we see comes wonderful writing, has come wonderful writing. That's a great point. Yeah. I I just like to, I'd like to quote a a utopian line from uh, the Irish poet, Yvonne Boland, who, who, who died just last year. Our future will become the past of other women. I I think that's such an amazing prophetic beautiful line now we use it as one of our epigraphs for the book so gave me a little chills (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. Us too. Us too. We too. Yeah. Yeah, it is it will be it's heartening to think of the the art that will come from this period of time yes. and what that could potentially offer to younger women and younger generations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for for writing this for so many reasons, but there were so many interesting nuggets that I just couldn't believe I didn't know, although I guess it makes sense. It's been like 10 years since I've been in college and done more of this type of reading and immersing myself in these these works, but I, you know, after reading your notes on Joan Didion um, for, when she was in San Francisco for the Summer of Love, suddenly her film, The Panic in Noodle Park, made a lot more sense, like, um, or that screenplay. Um, I didn't know Betty Friedan was at Town Bloody Hall. I don't know how I missed that in the documentary. Um, but, and then the just the heartbreaking timing of um, the feminine mystique coming out just a week after Sylvia Plath. Um, that is so life. extraordinary, right? That is so extraordinary. Because in a way, Sylvia Plath, so much of what Plath was writing, she would not have said that she was a feminist because yeah. I, I don't think the term was available to her in, in the way we use it now. But obviously she was writing great works of feminist theory. I mean, what is that great famous poem, Daddy, if not a work of feminist theory, if not a brilliant feminist sort of insurrection against patriarchal culture. You do not do, you do not do, black shoe, in which I have lived for 30 years, barely bearing, barely daring to breathe or at you. I mean, it's an extraordinary statement. Um, and, right, and right there, hidden in, hidden in the history of, of the 60s, uh, yeah. or of the film, she was thinking those things in the 50s too, as we know from her journals. Town Bloody Hall is also a wonderful film to capture the anger at the heart of uh, 70s feminism. Um, yeah. This is the place where uh, Norman Mailer is interviewing all of these so-called feminists and they're getting angrier and angrier until uh, Cynthia Ozick says to him, you know, I've always wanted to know what color ink is it that you dip your balls in? <laughs> and then Susan Sontag says, I don't like being called a lady writer, Norman. <laughs> and there's a lot of funny sarcasm at, at that uh, interchange that's really worth looking at again. Yeah. I, I wish that there were more exchanges like that, although I guess... Do we need another Norman Mailer? No, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just, from those, those were the types of things where as I was reading, I was putting little exclamation points. Um, in addition, so what were there any, um, what were the biggest kind of either epiphanies or like biggest surprises as you were going and doing kind of the deeper readings into this, uh, for this book? I know the Susan Sontag essays, her feminist essays must have been that was one of them, yes. Yeah. I, I would say for me, the most amazing epiphany uh, was that uh, before Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique, uh, African-American women writers had really analyzed racism and sexism and the interplay between racism and sexism. And I'm thinking about Audre Lorde, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Nina Simone, whose lyrics have are just extraordinary in terms of their analysis of feminism. Um, and of course, Audrey Lord. Um, so right. I, think, I think that was for me, one of them. So I was always taught that, well, the second wave was kind of white dominated. 
And I, I think this book interrogates that assumption. Um, I think that from Lorraine Hansberry and Audre Wood all the way through Claudia Rankine, African-American women are playing a major, major imaginative role in supplying the words and the tactics and the analyses of the second wave. Absolutely. And I loved the way that you not only, um, you know, looked over these these various works, but we also got glimpses into the lives of these women. Yeah. Um, so that was really important to us. We, we, mm-hmm. we felt that what we wanted to do was not write a, a book like that, like the Mad Woman in the Attic, focused in great, in, with great intensity and in great detail on, you know, certain proof texts, as it were. We wanted to write a book in which lives were also texts. We were discussing people, women's lives, the lives of our writers, as, as, as if they were also were subjects of analysis, because they were. It was interesting how the context produced the texts Absolutely. and important to, to think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, our, our title, Still Mad, um, is, is meant to suggest that, you know, the, the rage and madness and fury uh, in, impelling 70s feminism is still with us and still should be with us. Absolutely. And in capturing the, the works and exploring the lives of the writers that you did spanning so many decades, I mean, that had to be a bit of a daunting task. What was, I'm just curious what your creative and collaborative process was like in developing this book, how you decided what to include, what not to include. Were y'all fighting with each other? Like, no, we've got, we've got to put this in there. (laughs) What was that like? I can, I say one thing that I was thinking of before we, we started talking this afternoon, I was thinking that this was what, what got us through the pandemic. Mm. We were working on this book throughout the whole pandemic and uh, and we did it and we did it entirely on the phone i mean in our past collaborative because we were we were locked down right we couldn't travel to to meet and so we did everything on the phone we're not very technologically astute so we didn't use go to meeting or any of those programs we just talked on the phone endlessly using you know with two computers and two speaker phones and writing through things. I mean, of course, we, we, we collaborate by writing separate separate uh, passages or separate portions of every work, but then we go over everything. Each of us goes over everything and, you know, changes it so that it'll be seamlessly one voice. So the short answer is we divide up authors. That's true. Um, and Sandra's a poet, so I'm very happy when she takes the poets, but she didn't take all the poets, and and uh, she wasn't she wasn't uh, uh, greedy about that. I wasn't and, selfish and no, she wasn't selfish. <laughs> and we sh- and we each draft, you know, uh, let's say five portions of a chapter or another five portions of it, and I'm trying to knit it together. We were very happy to discover something called speakerphone. <laughs> that meant that we could actually be at our computers typing and actually hear each other. So that right. for us was a technological achievement. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> that was what we did. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, it definitely was a, a very seamless voice. You definitely accomplished accomplished that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, maybe just one last question. Um, sure. That sure. Sounds good. Um, you talk about Sojourner Truth and her concept of keeping things going while things are stirring. What advice would you give to young feminists who 
are observing the stirrings, but are overwhelmed by the enormity or the, the scale of the work. How does a young feminist jump in and help keep things going? You know, at the end of her uh, poetry at the inauguration, Amanda Gorman had a few lines that were that were very beautiful about not giving up and, and understanding that it was going to take time, but that it would come about. I mean, I'm, this is a very poor paraphrase, but I think we would echo Sojourner Truth, too. Keep I would say going. keep things going. Keep, keep, keep yeah. things going while things are stirring. I mean... Uh, and we would and we would echo all of the other women in the book who are trying to tap into complex paradoxes and ironies and sometimes painful frustrations and tensions in their lives and make something creative out of that. Yes, and forward into the future that will become other women's past. Thank you so, so, so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Oh, it was a delight. It was a delight. Lovely to meet you both. Wonderful so to wonderful. meet you. Great. So wonderful Thank to you meet so you. Much. We hope you enjoyed that interview. <laughs> we loved doing it. We loved chatting with these women. Um, it was a great conversation. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. But even if you don't, we had a really nice time. So We did. We did. We did. If you have uh, any questions, comments, uh, you know, feel free to um, DM us or reach out uh, via email or any of the other ways we're on social media, we're findable, um, we're searchable. So, um, feel free to reach out. Um, and just a reminder to check out the book. If, if the conversation was interesting or, um, sparked something in you, um, the book is still mad American women writers and the feminist imagination by Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar. There are the authors of the mad woman in the attic, which is another, um, celebrated book. Um, you might have heard of. <laughs> yes, we definitely yeah. recommend Still Mad. It was a great read and a a really interesting journey through time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and they'll be speaking, I believe, um, throughout the Miami Book Festival, which is coming up in November. Um, and you can look them up online at Miami Book Festival. Miami Book Fair. I apologize. Jeez, Maria. Get it right. Miami Book Fair. <laughs> um, you can follow them on Twitter at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2021 um, or look them up, MiamiBookFair.com. Yes. And now for a good thing. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, wow. YouTube has done a good um, in banning anti-vaccine activists and anti-vaccine content. Um, love to see it. Love yeah. to see the defense of truth because it really is dangerous misinformation that literally kills people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't consider this censorship. I would consider this, you know, in, important to public health and safety. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. It seems like the very least <laughs> different platforms can do. And yet we are celebrating it as a good thing because it really is. And it's good. It's good. I'm glad they did that. Yay. Yeah. Cause you've got like a few little charlatans like spreading all this shit. That's just permeating through certain, um, certain groups on the interwebs. So yay. YouTube. Good. Thanks to frolic for connecting us with, um, 
Sandra and Susan. That was um, a really great conversation. So yeah, love and excited for more authors. We're gonna have several more this month. Um, A cornucopia of women to chat with. (laughs) binders full (laughs) (laughs) some might say say binders full of women some might (laughs) (laughs) all right we'll see you all next week Bye. bye feminist without mystique is part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.com slash podcast